Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 314. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Today on the show, I am delighted to welcome Kevin Olson. He is the Senior Vice President for Payment Solutions at Vsoft, but he's more commonly known as the Payments Professor. He provides education to bankers and fintech companies and and pretty much anyone on payments, and uh, particularly when it comes to digital payments. So this is what we're going to be talking about today. It's sort of a payments 101 type class in a way which I know that many, many of the listeners, myself, I'm included with this, is we come from a lending background. We don't necessarily have as much uh, knowledge on the payment side. So I wanted to get Kevin on to really help us learn some of the basics, some of the things that we probably should all know, but don't, how the payment system works. And we cover ACH, FedNow, we talk about QR codes, we talk about access to the Fed payment system, talk about digital wallets, and much more. It was a fascinating episode. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to have you. So uh, why don't we get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. I know you're known as the payments professor, but let's go back before that and tell us a little bit about the arc of your career. The arc of my career, it's actually interesting because I recently got asked, how does one get into payments? And I tell them it's truly on accident. Uh, Not many people I know go, I want to go and get in electronic payments. In fact, a lot of people don't even know what it is. I got into electronic payments because a couple of decades ago, I was teaching IT. I was teaching how to be like a Windows system administrator, how to build computers, all that kind of good stuff. And I had a student that was visually impaired. I mean, he could not see anything. But I worked with him at this technical college and taught him how to be able to work in computer networks, even taught him how to hand build computers. And, you know, states do what states do. And they decided, since you have so much success in the program, we're going to just cut your funding. (laughs) So I'm like, wait, I'm out of a job suddenly, right? And, well, the local newspaper caught wind of this because, you know, the newspaper hears the government does something like that. It's front page type news. Okay, it was really page six in, in a tiny little corner. But they put an article out about it. And then the next day, this gentleman shows up at my door at the class and he goes, you're going to work for me. And I'm like, who are you and what am I going to be doing? Because I do need a job. (laughs) And it turns out that he owned a software company that created electronic payments or what we know as ACH or a remote deposit capture software. And he said, if you've been able to work with these kids, you've been able to teach them how to build and do computers when they can't even see it then we got some financial institutions that really need your help. And and suddenly I'm in the banking industry. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So, yes, and if you can teach blind people, I mean, the metaphor is obviously there, but uh, bankers are sometimes uh, blind to the changes of fintech. Maybe before we dig in, I I do want to make, we've got a lot of of stuff I want to cover today, but let's just talk a little bit about Vsoft. That's sort of what your role is there and how it interfaces with the payments professor. Okay, well, let's start off. Vsoft is actually a global payments company. We are based out of India and out of the US, but we have presences in multiple countries. And we work in the electronic payments world. We provide a lot of check clearing services. And it's interesting too, because a lot of, if you have bankers and credit unions listening in, they're probably using our services and they don't know it. I compare it to like Intel inside. You know, you buy a Dell computer, well, it has Intel inside and you may not know that unless you look at the sticker, right? 
And we do a lot of the back-end things when it comes to check processing, but we also do a lot of things when it comes to the electronic processing. In fact, where we're moving now in vSoft is towards faster payments, towards core systems that are able to move in real time. And what I do at vSoft is I am the strategic visionary, is, is one way to be able to put it. I'm the company spokesperson. I'm the one that goes out there and serves on the regulatory boards. You really want to know excitement. You have not lived until you served on an electronic payments regulatory board and somebody's argued the word and versus but for two hours. It's amazing (laughs) stuff, okay? But I get to be out there serving on those boards. I get to be out there seeing what's happening as far as where's the industry going? Where do the rules, the regulations, sometimes even the politics say the industry is going? And then I come back and I convey that information to our developers, to our our software team. And this is what we need to build for in the future. This is where we need to be able to make adjustments for. This is what the public is clamoring for. And it is my job to be able to be in in that way a, a payments whisperer that I can go through the regulations, I can go through what's happening in the industry, and then I can come and explain it to the the software guys. Because, I mean, I guess some of that goes back to where I started off in the IT world. Right, right. Got it, got it. And so then how how did you become the payments professor? Okay, becoming the payments professor was really a great story. As I got into electronic banking, I ended up getting a job working for what's called a payment association, which their job is just to be able to influence the rules and regulations And we're kind of like a congressman in electronic payments because they are territorial, they are regional. And I I worked for an organization that was mainly out of Virginia and Texas and Florida and uh, North Carolina. And I would, you know, do all the national stuff, learning the rules and regulations. And then I'd come back at the state level and I would teach it to everybody. Well, I would also teach them how to be able to get prepared for a lot of the uh, electronic payment certification programs we have. Like there's a program called the AAP. There's a program called the APRP and another one called the NCP. And for people working in the banking industry, want to advance those careers, they need to have that. In fact, our auditors look for those things too. And I was teaching those things. And people are like, you're so good at teaching this. I mean, you know, I said payments whisperer before. There were people who said, you are the ACH whisperer. You're able to take this stuff and you make it make sense, which, you know, if you've seen any of the YouTube videos, you know, I just, that's my gift is I can take the complicated stuff in and kick it out in ways that make sense. Well, then I meet Mr. Viraganta over at Vsoft and we're talking and he goes, you need to put this on YouTube. And I went, what? He goes, you need to help people. You, You tell people this in a way that makes them understand. I want you to be the payments professor. And I went, what? <laughs> Again, and now I'd already been wearing the bow tie. So, you know, the bow tie was already there. And, and, and he and I together, we, we had this vision. We, we said, let's do this. Let's go ahead and let's make electronic payments easier to understand. And, and in fact, one of the things I strive for is I call it edutainment. Electronic banking can be so boring to have to read the rules and regulate. And I mean, it can bring it down. But why not bring some excitement into it? Why not bring some entertainment into it? Why not make it easier for people? And I mean everybody, people who are processing payments and people who are receiving payments to understand what happens. I, and the questions I get a lot are simple things like, how do I endorse a check? Or, or the scary one is, my money got stolen. What do I do now? And I have just strived to really find ways to answer and provide solutions and understanding and information to the world is what it's become uh, through the YouTube channel and through Vsoft on what it means to work in electronic payments and how it works. 
Right, right. Okay, so let's get right into um, today's lesson, shall we? And, uh, this is for my uh, interest as well as the interest of, of the listeners here. We are going to go through a whole bunch of uh, of just payments, famous topics so we can become clear. So you've already talked about ACH a couple of times. I want to understand from start to finish what happens during an ACH payment. I mean, you go in, you log into some website, you put in your bank details and you say, do you want to pay by ACH? Yes. And away you go. What happens then? All right. Well, Peter, get your notepad out because as the professor, (laughs) I'm going to have to give a quiz at the end, just so (laughs) you know. So let's start off with, I got a feeling you like getting money, right? Mm -hmm. Would you be okay with receiving some money? Of course. In fact, that's what you do is you receive money. You receive funds. And we're going to work in the world of credit. So any of the experts out there listening going, hey, wait, wait, there's debits too. Yes. In ACH, we have credits and debits, and there is a little difference in how they flow. I'm going to stick with the credit for today. And Peter, I'm going to say you want to be able to get your payroll and you want to get it what we call direct deposit. You want to have your money on payday in your account when you wake up and you don't have to do anything, right? Isn't that a nice thing to have? Mm -hmm. Well, how does that happen? The way that happens is you're going to be the receiver. That's your technical term. We're going to call you the receiver. You're going to receive the funds. But for that to happen, you first have to go to your company that you work for And we're going to call them the originator. They're where the payment instructions or the payment itself is going to originate from. And you're going to sign up for the direct deposit. You're going to provide them with your bank or credit union routing number and account information. Now, that can be easily done with a voided check, or you can find the information off your website or off your app. You give them that information. Now, payment is not entered the banking world yet. This is between you as the employee, the receiver, and that business, the originator. Now, the originator, they're going to have a relationship with a bank or credit union, which we call the ODFI, the Originating Depository Financial Institution. They're going to take your payroll information along with all your coworkers, and they're going to put it into a file. And in that file will be all the payroll transactions for the company. And that originator sends it on to the ODFI. Now, that ODFI, they're going to do some risk controls. They're going to make sure the money is there so that you're going to get paid and the money can be collected. And they're going to make sure that, you know, there's nothing funny going on with this. Somebody's not trying to embezzle money even. Once they've done all their risk controls, they're going to take that file and they're going to forward it on to the Federal Reserve Bank. Now, we refer to the Federal Reserve Bank as the ACH operator, you know, and think of the classic uh, operator here. uh, How can I help you? You know, and directing the calls for where they need to go. Well, the ACH operator, the Federal Reserve, they're going to direct the payment for where it needs to go. What the Federal Reserve Bank does, the ACH operator, they collect these files all day long. They collect them from every bank and credit union who's sending ACH throughout the day. As they collect them, they pull them apart, and then they make singular files for the individual banks and credit unions. So let's say you're at Bank ABC. When that file comes from your company that you work for through the ODFI and the Federal Reserve Bank receives it, they pull Peter's Bank ABC payment as well as any other Bank ABC payment that's coming through. Because what is happening is we call it a batch, store, and forward processing system. They're going to batch together all the payments that go to Bank ABC. They're going to store them until certain times, until certain windows throughout the day, and then they're going to forward it on to the RDFI, that is the Receiving Depository Financial Institution. Being the Receiving Depository Financial Institution, they are the bank or the credit union where the receiver, you, has your account so that they can then 
post your money to your account. And it's all magic just happens over, well, hours to days, depending on the situation. Mm -hmm. And actually, let's talk about that. So I mean, there are many countries in the world that have instant payments. I'm from Australia and we've had it in Australia, I think for a couple of decades now. And you talked about like VSOF working on instant payments, but the Fed now is obviously Federal Reserve's uh, been working on that now for a couple of years. I said it's coming, it's coming in you know, 2023 or 2024. How will Fed now change that process you just mentioned? Okay, first I want to say I'm I'm known for saying a lot of times I got my own little quotes that people know me by, and one of them is there's a place for every payment. Every payment has its place. And if we even go back to that process of how that payment flowed, the process is actually the same for every payment channel. Uh, we make have different names for the people involved occasionally, you know, like sender versus receiver, stuff like that. But the process is still going to be the same person, financial institution, middleman, which, you know, is going to be an operator of some sort, receiving financial institution, receiver. That type of process is always there. What determines how long it takes is the channel we choose to go over, like checks. They can take a long time. ACH, it's a little bit faster. Every payment system has its pluses and minuses for how we do that. When we look at FedNow, and FedNow is going to be a game changer, there's no doubt about it, when it becomes available in 2023, it will be under the basis of doing only credits. There will not be any debits. It will be a credit-only push system. And because of how it will work to where only I can send money out of my account and I can only push credits, nobody can debit my account, and we will have what we call settlement. And settlement's a process that gets confusing a lot of times for non-banking people. Settlement is where money actually moves. See, what we, we have happen a lot of times is we don't have money move. We have the appearance of money moving. We have payment instructions moving, but people don't realize the money hasn't really moved until we have what we call settlement. Even in ACH, that settlement piece, it doesn't take place all the time, all throughout the day, like what will happen in FedNow? See, FedNow won't batch and store things. FedNow is going to be, I want to send Peter money. I hit the button right now. Bing, your phone's going to pop up and go, hey, Peter, payments professor just sent you money. Settlement for that between your bank and my credit union or my bank takes place immediately. Within 20 seconds, actually, all of that will take place. But it will be a one-off payment instead of being batched, stored, and forward. And that's going to be the big difference. Instead of batching, storing things together, we'll have one-off payments that will take place instantaneously, 24-7, 365 too. ACH doesn't work that way. Right. ACH is only when a bank is open or a credit union is open on what we call a banking day. Uh, you totally get that. And that's, that's what um, people say that, you know, you'll be able to send money on a Saturday and it'll actually be actually in your account on a Saturday and you don't have to wait till Monday, which is great. So then... I want to go back to your payroll example, and you've probably seen some of the fintech companies that have been advertising, you can get your pay two days early, and I actually have my pay deposited into into a fintech company, and I do get my pay two days early. What happens there? Why? How can they do it and others don't? What is the secret to getting it two days early? Well, it does depend on how they are doing it. And I say it does depend on how they're doing it because there's a couple of different ways it can be done. First of all, there is some risk in what they're doing and they are willing to accept that risk and they're accepting the risk that that settlement piece I talked about may never take place. That final settlement may never take place and there will be the ones left holding the proverbial bag and not have the money because whoever's account they put it in took off with it. Well, ACH, because it is such a reliable system, it's actually probably one of the most reliable payment channels we have out there. It's reliable for how it works. When we send credit 
transactions through ACH, you have the ability to send them two days in advance. In fact, payroll that takes place on Friday is typically sent on Wednesday, if not Thursday, for it to arrive on Friday. And this is great because it does give us security and safety. If something goes wrong, we can fix it. We can pull it back. We can make adjustment type deals. Okay. Mm -hmm. And because they do send it that early and you can't send it more than two days though, but because they do send it early, a lot of times the banks and credit unions, they are seeing in their core systems that, Hey, the money's here, but it's not dated to be what we call effective. And there's an actual field called an effective date in an ACH. It's not dated to be effective until Friday. So here it's Wednesday. I see your transaction, but it's not effective till Friday. So because I don't want to put myself in a risk situation, I'm not going to put it in your account. And I don't have to. In fact, by rule and regulation, I don't have to put it in your account until that effective date, which is on Friday. Now, these fintechs and some of these other banks or credit unions that are doing this, they're saying, I see this. Or some of them are just going, I have a history of receiving this on your behalf. And I believe because you got good credit, I believe you're going to continue to get it. So I'm just going to go ahead and post it to your account based off of what I believe the amount's going to be, hoping it will show up. Or in the case of this one I'm describing, they're seeing it and they're saying, I'm going to just go ahead and put it in your account. So they are taking a risk by basically giving you a short-term unsecured loan and making that, those funds available to you when they do that. Got it. Got it. Okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and I want to talk about mobile payments. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in China over the last uh, few years and you know, they have um, you know, Alipay, WeChat Pay there, which is everything is done on a mobile phone. You can go buy a banana at a, a vendor and you can pay by mobile phone. You can even give money to the homeless. Have, they have a little QR code there. And uh, so everything's done with, with QR codes and starting to see it a little bit in this country. Would love to get your take on the future of QR codes as a payment method. Where, where do you think, it, if, if it is going to take off, where will that happen? Well, it's, I believe it's about to happen. And here's, I'll give you two main reasons why I believe it's going to happen. The first one is my 11-year-old. He can do it. Okay, if he can do it, we're golden. In fact, he taught me how to do it a little bit, I have to confess. I live in Tampa. And you know, during the pandemic, I took my 70-year-old grandmother and my 11-year-old son out to eat. And we go to eat. And one of the first things we come across is a QR code for the menu, not the payment yet, but the menu, right? And I'm telling my mom, mom, we're going to have to get you a QR code reader so that you are able to get these menus and even eventually do the payments for these meals and stuff when I'm not with you. And she's like, I don't need that. I don't want to get that. It's, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. In fact, that's what we call a friction point right there. Mm -hmm. There's a friction point making it hard. Well, my 11 year old son goes, dad, you don't need to download anything. And I'm like, Son, I'm the payments professor. <laughs> you need to download a QR code. He goes, no, dad, your camera will do it. And he pulls out his phone. Yes, he has his own phone. He pulls out his phone and he is able to instantaneously pull up and read this QR code. He showed me one of the key factors. Friction has been removed. I don't have to have a special app. I don't have to have a special reader. And the story does progress to where we did actually make the payment with the QR code. Not every restaurant's doing that, but some are doing it. And it was a small merchant. Small merchants starting to get it is a huge indicator. The second thing that tells me this is going to happen was just last week. I'm a creature of habit. I typically go to the same gas station because I work on a fuel rewards program. I like being able to save up and get, you know, 20 to 30 cents off a gallon every, you know, 50th fill, it seems like. <laughs> and I went to one that was just more convenient because I was in a rush. And I'm at this gas pump and I look up and there's all these QR codes 
right in the corner, right beside where it's telling me how much money I'm spending and how much gas is going in. And I'll look closer at these QR codes and they are payment QR codes. All I had to do was be able to, as soon as it was done pumping, pull out my phone with the app that my 11-year-old, he knows it's out there. The adoption, the friction's been removed. I don't have to go in. I don't have to touch anything. I can just pull out my phone and I can now scan that QR code at the pump. Now, the at the pump is what's key here too. At the pump has been a huge litmus test for the world of payments. Uh, I hate to say it, but it's really where most fraud gets tested is at the pump. Uh, we've heard You've heard of skimmers, people skimming and taking your data from cards. That usually happens at the pump because you can hide, you're not gonna be seen, you're able to you know, get away real quick. But now to be able to see that the QR codes are showing up there right where I am able to make my checkout, that means they're coming. And I know that they're coming because more people are starting to expect them. Vsoft, we've had a product in India, uh, like you experienced over in Asia. We've had a product in India that's been available for a few years that any merchant can just post a QR code and you just scan it and your payment goes through. The US has just been slow on that adoption, but I really believe because the friction is being removed and because of the ease of use and at the pump or at every location is coming, we will definitely see a rise in the adoption of QR payments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, my next question is around access to the federal payment system, because this is something that I read about quite a bit. And you know, apparently like every bank has access, has a, like a federal reserve account. Like you just said, they, they kind of have access to the payment system. But fintechs don't. I know that some of them have been uh, arguing that they should. What does it actually mean to have access to the federal payment system? All right. That one's actually a pretty loaded question on, on how to go about it. I'm going to take it from the point of view of a Federal Reserve Bank account. Let's look at it that way. Okay. You actually have a Federal Reserve Bank account and there's having an account and having access to one. Big difference between the two. To have a Federal Reserve Bank account, you must be a financial institution. You must have a true real deal routing number. And that's not just something you can go buy off the shelf at Walmart, okay? You, you, you've got to go through a secure process to be an established financial institution to be able to then set up and have an account at the Fed. So no routing number, no account at the Fed. But access to that account is different. Access to that account can be because like Vsoft, we have FedLine access. We have the ability for being able to have direct connections for things like FedNow when it becomes available and ACH products, check products, that types of stuff. Some, not all, but some other fintechs have that type of access too. And they have it because they have relationships with, like in our case, we work with corporate credit unions and what we call bankers banks, which are banks and credit unions for banks and credit unions. It's a whole nother level and layer there. And they allow us to be able to make use of their accounts and allows us then to be able to have those connections. So not every fintech is going to have that type of relationship and established connection, but there are some that are out there that definitely do. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about digital wallets because this may be part of the QR code conversation or not, but, you know, we've seen obviously a a big increase in the pandemic of uh, digital wallets. And, you know, I know I use my Apple Pay uh, a lot more than I used to. They've gained traction, but what what they haven't still haven't really broken out where everyone's using it. Um, what needs to change, do you think, for digital wallets to really become mainstream? It's back to that friction. It's the mass adoption capability. It's when you can use it anywhere, anytime. 
And that's why we see a lot of success still with debit cards. Debit cards are accepted pretty much everywhere you go and it can go credit or debit. So it's got options that are there. Whereas you go back to your digital wallet and you mentioned even Apple Pay. Apple Pay is usable in a lot of places, but definitely not everywhere. And it's because of that, that what happens with the end user experience, and I'm one of those who's done this, is I got used to using it or I've had funds on my you know Apple account that I've gotten as gift cards or stuff like that. And I want to go use it. But then it's like, well, I need to find a place to be able to spend this money. It's only, you know, used in special locations and it's not the mass adoption. So when I hit those again, it's a friction point in payments is what we refer to it as. When I hit that friction point, that suddenly that, yay, I got a digital wallet goes, oh, I got a digital wallet. How am I going to do this? And where can I actually use it? So I believe the QR code helps solve for this. Even though in my gas station example, there were four different ones. You had to scan the one appropriate to your digital wallet app to be able to use it. But I do believe we are getting closer to that. Plus, you got to be able to go set that up. And in some cases, depending on the cards themselves, it, it can be a task or a challenge. You know, you need a millennial close by to be able to help you to get everything set up. <laughs> yes, indeed. Or a Gen Z. <laughs> um, okay, so... I want to talk about about crypto and DeFi, decentralized finance, um, and I want to also talk about central bank digital currencies. But first, let's touch on crypto because a lot of you read some of the evangelists here, and they they basically say that you know crypto is taking over banking. It's going to like in the next decade or two, everything will be done on a decentralized platform. What are your thoughts on on, on crypto and DeFi, particularly when it comes to payments? Oh, I, I definitely believe it's coming. Uh, again, I'm one of those that I stand on the side and I try to watch what's happening. And a great personal example I can give you is my two sons. I have a 28-year-old and I have an 11-year-old. My 28-year-old was a kid. He would get checks from grandma. And then he would go, dad, what am I supposed to do with this? Okay. And so he would come to the bank of dad and dad would turn it magically into cash for him. And he was happy. My 11-year-old, he gets cash from grandma. And he's like, dad, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't want this. He's like, dad, I want Roblox. He wants a digital currency usage that is in a specific use case too. You know, the Roblox video game that's out there. That's where he prefers to have his funds, his equity, I guess you could even call it. So he doesn't want to have the cash. He wants to be in a totally digital world. He doesn't understand why we even carry it around. He thinks it's weird, you know? And, and I even once gave him a $50 bill just so he could have it. And he's like, what, what do you want? Why? Why? Just put it in my account somewhere. We are seeing more and more people realizing that the tangibility, uh, the physical part of money is, it's, it's an, getting to be a dated concept. You know, certain generations, you have to be able to touch and feel it. Our rules and regulations even still say you got to be able to touch and feel it. But we're starting to see that maybe we don't need to be able to touch and feel it. Maybe we can have currencies for specific use cases and they can meet those specific use cases quite well. Like in the case of Roblox, you can look how much money that company is making through the use of using their own internal type currency. It's not actual true cryptocurrency. I want to stress that, but it is their own internal type currency. It's quite effective for their uses. And I'm starting to see more and more in the world of cryptocurrency too. You've heard Bitcoin. I was blessed. I got into Bitcoin, not early enough, but a little bit early. And it's been good to me. And I, I can't tell you how many people along that journey are like, why would you do that? It's the tulips. You know, it's like the tulips in the Netherlands years ago. And it's, it's just going to disappear. And it, it, it looked like it did. I mean, don't get me wrong. It looked like it did a couple of times. But then it's one of those things that, well, wait a minute. It would slowly build momentum. 
There are definitely people who think it's never going to happen, but there is enough of people that think it is that are causing it to happen. And personal opinion is it's the older, outdated thinking that says it's not going to happen. It's the people who are afraid of the change. It's the people who are just holding on to the old ways that are saying it's not going to happen. Whereas the younger generation, the more forward thinkers, they're seeing these use cases. They are implementing these use cases. They are the ones that are causing more of a rise in the crypto type and electronic currencies, even the digital wallets, and they are forcing it to happen. So I do believe it is the payments of the future. And we are seeing like the OCC, uh, they came out with an interpretive letter earlier this year. I think it was 1173 or 1174. Not sure the letter number, but they talked about the use of what we call stable coins. And they even said, hey, financial institutions, you can start working with these things, a stable coin that is. However, in doing so, you've got to start looking at the risk. That's a huge indicator for what's going to happen in the industry. When they start getting recognized by a governing body, like in this case, the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, the OCC, who oversees the top tier financial institutions, and they say, well, you can do it, but this is what we want you to look at when you're doing that. That is one of our earliest indicators of it's coming in the banking world. We just need things like the FDIC, the NCUA to get on board as well. Right. What about central bank digital currencies? I mean, the Federal Reserve is is looking at it. Um, we actually have a session. Um, by the time this is published, it'll be in the past, but we have a session coming up with someone from the Fed talking about it. But I'm curious about how, um, I mean, it's, it's still not, it's not clear how it's going to work yet, but, you know, we've talked about the Federal Reserve and its role in the payment system. What what do you think would happen when if, if we end up with a central bank digital currency? Well, again, a lot of it's going to come down to point of view. It is another one that I do believe it's going to happen. My number one indicator on why it's going to happen is because everybody says it's not. It's not. We'll <laughs> never need it. We'll never do it. You know, I heard that with blockchain. I've heard that with uh, cryptocurrency. I'm hearing it currently with CBDC. However, it's happening in other places around the world. And it does have definite use cases. That's the other thing. You can have money dedicated for specific instances. You have such amazing trackability with it too. That's the other thing is we have worries in the electronic banking world. One of our biggest risks is it comes with what we call OFAC, Office of Foreign Asset Control. We don't want to be funding or processing, delivering money that's going to drug cartels, that's going to terrorism, that's going to weapons of mass destruction or human trafficking, anything of that nature. So there's so much scrutiny over where payments and how payments are flowing in that realm that a CBDC helps to eliminate. Now, full disclosure, cryptocurrency is not as traceable in that case. That's one of its biggest concerns is it's harder to have some of those risk monitoring applied. Whereas a CBDC, because it's internal within the system itself, is easier to be able to monitor, is easier to be able to control and trace. And it, it takes away a lot of the anonymity that you have like with cash. I mean, you, you, it's really hard to trace cash unless it goes through the banking system. And cryptocurrency has got some traceability issues too, but CBDC, no doubt it can be traced and it can be monitored and it can be watched and it can be predicted even. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, we're, we're running out of time, but I, a couple more things I want to get to. I want to, I want to hit, hit you with uh, some of the big names in payments and I'd love to kind of get your perspective on it. So uh, just quickly, let's start with Stripe. What's your perspective on Stripe? 
Stripe did the ability to remove the friction. Uh, I, I have to say, in full disclosure, I use Stripe. So, you know, I'm going to be a fan of them. On the Payments Professor website where I've, I've got all these courses and all my payments are processed through Stripe. And when I first started it, I was not happy. I'm, I'm going to tell you too, because I didn't really have many choices with the website I was using, how it was set up. They're like, hey, you have to use Stripe. I'm like, okay. Well, I still have some concerns because it can be a little pricey in my opinion. And I would like to actually be able to go directly through a bank just because of my history and what I know and, and know I can, might be able to get a better deal. But at the same time, Stripe's given me incredible convenience. Mm-hmm. Stripe is also out there. And uh, anybody who's a small business owner probably knows about Stripe. Your consumers out there, they may not. They may, may be clueless. And, and that's fine. But it is out there and it is one of the biggest, easiest options that if you're in an online environment to be able to hook up and start using. Right, right. Okay, Square. Square is about the same way. Uh, Square, you know, came to popularity, what, about 15 years ago when they created the card reading dongle that you could put on a smartphone. And I remember getting one of those as soon as I could. And it, it made it to where you now had adoption of card scanning anywhere you want to be able to go to. And that's one of their big things is they went out and they took over, I felt like, that sector of the industry so that you could be, let's say, at a flea market and you could be a merchant of one and you could have the ability for scanning those cards. Again, though, a lot like Stripe, it does come with a price. You are typically paying a little higher price than what you would pay with a financial institution. And in fact, that's where let's circle back around to your QR codes. Mm-hmm. If we circle back around to your QR codes, I believe Stripe's starting to do this and Square too are having QR related products. I know Bsoft, we have a product called Pigeon where we're going QR based too to fill those same issues to where you have the payment. Like, for example, at the flea market, imagine you're somebody there selling something. When you sell, uh, let's say it's a guitar, a thousand dollar nice guitar. You want to make sure you get that money as you watch that guitar leaving you, right? Because you're never going to see it again if you don't. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things Square did is with the dongle, you, you can go ahead and get the card information, process the payment. And with our product Pigeon, we, we do the same thing. We'll give you a QR code that right there, you can have it pop up and you can do the RTP or the FedNow push payment that takes place in seconds, definite settlement and know it's there and know that you've got your money. And so those are big things that they are... Uh, offering and what's out there and made available. So just to just follow up on that, is it is that operational now, that the, the Pigeon product where, where you're, you can use a QR code for instant settlement? It is, but it is only usable at this point in time through RTP and only through a couple of our corporate credit unions that we're working with. Okay. We, we are also working on getting it out for mass use and mass adoption. And uh, because of the pandemic, some of that slowed some of that down. And it's being slowly but surely put out there to everybody. Okay. Okay. Another company I want to get your feedback on, Marketa. That's more the B2B space is what they're doing. Uh, there's a great article I read on them today that, you know, uh, they're also looking at, uh, they're using purchasing cards. So they do have some physical cards out there. But what they have done is they've recognized that the purchasing card's not going away yet, or the physical card's not going away. So they've they uh, made a big announcement about using recycled cards and that they are, you know, going to be more plastic earth friendly and using their recycled cards. But the B2B aspect is an area that a lot of people don't realize there's a, so many payments going through. Uh, for example, look at a restaurant. When you look at a restaurant and you go through their menu, almost every single item on their menu came from another merchant. 
So if they've got milk that's coming from a dairy farm, they've got, you know, tomatoes that's coming from a local farmer and the carrots could be coming from a different farmer. If they've got the plates that you're using, that's coming from another merchant. The tablecloth, that's coming from another merchant. The table you're actually sitting at, that's coming from another merchant. The cleaning supplies to clean the restaurant, another merchant. I can go on and on and on. And so the world of B2B payments especially in the case of like a restaurant to be able to keep up with the supply of everything they need for that restaurant, for your dining experience to take place. It's off the charts. And people don't realize that it's not only them processing the payment for you to come in and eat. It's not only processing the payroll for the people that work there, but it's paying all these other businesses that they've got to be able to work with too. And that's, that's a huge area is the B2B payments. Right. Right. Okay. So, so last question before we wrap, um, when you're looking out into the future, what are the, payments trends that you're most focused on? Well, okay. One of the ones that, and I serve on a group with uh, NACHA through what's called the Payments Innovation Alliance. We have a group called Conversational Payments that we get together and we talk about local payments. Yes, it's great to be able to pull up and use my phone, but have you used your watch for anything? Have you used like some of the smart rings that they've had? But what about it being just your voice? Talking to, I can't say her name. It starts with an A and it ends with an A and it's got a Lex in the middle. If I say it, she's going to come on and ask me what I want at the moment. But if <laughs> I, I, I talk to her and have her do payments for me or the other one, the Sir I, I miss said that one on purpose too. If you talk to her, you know, the phone devices, we're seeing that trend starting to move forward of vocal payments. Why stop and have to touch something? Why stop and have to actually open up the app if I can just say, hey, so-and-so, can you pay so-and-so for this? Can you send this money to this person? Or what's my bank account balance? Or, oh no, I forgot to pay the insurance. Send my insurance payment over to my insurance company right now. I believe that's where we're going, that it's going to be even easier. It's going to be vocal because your vocal print is so unique to you. And you, you can have passwords with it and other things in there. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, the privacy aspect, you don't want to be on downtown Times Square and being like, hey, so-and-so, send the money to so-and-so and here's the passcode out loud. But there are things to be able to work around it. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, Kevin. Really fascinating uh, conversation today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. Okay, see ya. In many ways, it was payments that really led the fintech revolution with, uh, you know, with PayPal, you know, 20 plus years ago. And now, you know, Square has been around as, as Kevin said, for many years. And you can see that there, you know, for, for a mature, you know, vertical within fintech, it's, it's, there's a lot of changes happening and there's going to be even more happening for, over the rest of this decade. So it was good to get, I think, some fundamentals nailed down here. We've, uh, I think we've, I learned a lot in this episode. Hope you did as well. And uh, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye.